Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong podcast. We're coming at you from Merlot University Medical Center. I'm Ronuk. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we round out our prostate cancer journey, this time focusing on metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Guys, it's been a great few weeks going through the ins and outs of prostate cancer. And I mean, certainly I anticipate that there will be updates in the future that we'll have to share with our listeners as well. But at least for now, I'm really happy with the way that we've gone through this disease. Today's episode, we're really talking about a lot of those newer therapies, and we're going to give you all a lot of pearls on critical appraisal. We will have a series about this kind of intercalated throughout this coming year in 2024, but we really just want to tell you the ins and outs about how to read some of these papers, and prostate cancer is a great field to do this in. An important skill, no matter what field of hematology or oncology you end up in, or what part of hematology and oncology you end up in, and I think prostate cancer provides ample opportunities for, for critical appraisal. All right, that sounds good, guys. Well, let's get on with the last of our prostate cancer episodes. This is our first episode back after the holidays, and so I'm curious. So, Vivek, you said you spent Christmas in North Carolina. What was the best part of your holiday? I'd say the best part was the food. So like Thanksgiving, I, I cooked our turkey. It worked out well. Dan, you'd be proud of me. You know, all of this is really to impress the chef, Dan Housewrath. We go to Dan's place, we say, yes, chef. You know, that's how that's how that works. So, but it turned out very good though. Oh, that's great. We had a lot of fun uh, my place too. We went up to see Logan's family and then my parents came into town after that and got to try my hand at Beef Wellington for the first time, which is a lot of fun. That's awesome. Yeah, I got to spend Christmas in Philadelphia this year with my family as well. And it was great. We got to do the Christmas market, saw the tree, got a chance to go home to my parents' house in New Jersey for a couple of days and and then came back. So it was just a, a good holiday all around. I do wish that we had a white Christmas, to be totally honest with you, but maybe with the way climate change is going, that's a thing of the past. So I don't know. But anyway, guys, I'm super excited to be back. We're back with another prostate cancer episode, and this time focusing on metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. So as we've been doing, Vivek, do you want to start us off with a case and then we'll go from there? Yeah, let's do it. So we have a 55-year-old previously healthy male with metastatic prostate cancer who you are consulted on to discuss treatment options, and this is in the inpatient setting. So he really had de novo metastatic disease as an inpatient after presenting with severe back pain and significant lower extremity weakness, an MRI was obtained which showed a compression fracture with spinal cord impingement related to osseous metastatic disease. A PSA was done and it was elevated at 2200. So I wanted to start the discussion off about when we think about using things like LHRH antagonists, like a Degarelix, as opposed to something like a Luprolide or Lupron that's an agonist. So this is a case where you do that. I don't want to harp on it, but just remember the testosterone flare when you give something like Luprolide compared to something like Degarelix, which is indicated in a patient with something like a spinal cord compression due to prostate cancer. But suffice to say, this patient ended up getting better. Got radiation, got Degarelix. You're now consulted on him before he's about to leave the hospital. He's walking around his room. He feels good. So Dan, when we have these patients with de novo metastatic prostate cancer, how do we classify their volume of disease? And how do we think about other workup tests that we need to do for these patients? 
when we're talking about high and low volume, high volume is defined as the presence of visceral metastases or four or more bone mets with one outside of the axial skeleton, so outside of the vertebral bodies and pelvis. In this case, our patient definitely has high volume disease. He's got four or more bone mets. One of them is in the humerus, so outside of that axial skeleton. But the other things we need to be thinking about is uh, whether this is going to be considered castrate sensitive or castrate resistant. Based on the topic of this episode, I have a guess as to which way this is going to go. But the castrate sensitive versus resistance is defined as disease, which seems to be increasing in volume or progressing despite a testosterone level less than 50. Some of the other testing that you want to think about is all patients with metastatic prostate cancer should undergo germline BRCA testing. That's a gene that we typically associate with breast cancer, but also important in this disease state as well. Just because we now have targeted treatment options in the castrate-resistant setting that leverage the BRCA mutation, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. They should also undergo testing for mismatch repair genes, as they could be candidates for immunotherapy if they're found to be MSI high. So those are kind of the main things that I like to think about. Let me know if I, if I missed anything there. No, that, that's perfect. And Dan, we have a little bit of script for our patients, and I messed up and forgot to mention that he had a PSMA PET scan. So Dan was mentioning the results of that, and I'm just going to mention it now. So remember, listeners, PSMA PET scans are, are really important for staging these patients. It has implications for therapies later on. And like Dan said, for our patient, had widespread osseous disease with one of the humerus. So that's why we knew he was high volume. So we had this patient we talked about last week how we treat these patients with high-volume castrate-sensitive disease. He, again, didn't have any other sort of androgen deprivation therapy before he presented. And we talked about the triple therapy options. So we have things like ADT plus abiraterone plus docetaxel or ADT plus darolutamide plus docetaxel, those triple therapies. So a lot of therapy, and you're continuing that darolutamide or abipred until progression, so essentially for the rest of that patient's life. So remember, that's a sort of long-term therapy, but those showed overall survival benefit for patients with high-volume disease. Our patient here completed six cycles of docetaxel therapy and continued with ADT plus abipred. He ended up going with that regimen as opposed to darolutamide. He's doing well now six years later without evidence of disease and an undetectable PSA. But now over the past couple months, he's noticed some more back pain, and that undetectable PSA is now rising to a PSA of 50. And he also comes to the clinic and he says, man, doc, my sh left shoulder is hurting a lot. We checked his testosterone level. As expected, it's less than 50, so at the castrate level. So let's talk about treatment options for patients with metastatic prostate cancer who are castrate resistant. So first off, I want to talk about, let's talk about the role of bisphosphonate. So can one of you discuss what the role of bisphosphonate therapy is in these patients? And we alluded to some of this in our pharmacology episode too, so it's always a nice sort of refresher. So as you guys may remember, there was an older phase three randomized control trial that compared Zomata to placebo in patients with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. And here, about 400 patients were enrolled from 1998 to 2002, which, remember, has a different treatment paradigm, but nonetheless, make of that what you will. The primary endpoint was proportion of patients with skeletal-related events, which was defined by either pathologic bone fractures that they didn't have to be symptomatic of for, radiation to painful bone mets, surgery for bone mets, or a change of systemic therapy for bone pain. And these patients were monitored with bone scans at 
month six and 15, and then axial surveys every three months. And what they found was that there was a reduction in the skeletal-related events by an absolute difference of 11%. And they had a prolonged time to the first skeletal-related event by five months. So what this suggested was that Zometa does provide benefit in helping to deter some of those skeletal-related events in these patients with metastatic disease. Thereafter, there was a cooperative group that was looking at the utility of Zometa for castrate-sensitive patients, and this was published in the JCO in 2014. So this trial had 650 patients from 2004 to 2012. It was the same design as the prior study, except there was no imaging uh, that was being used to monitor these patients. And what they found that there was no difference in the incidence of skeletal-related events or time to the first skeletal-related event. And so what this suggested to us is that we now only use Zometa for the castrate-resistant setting. So we can also spread out the dosing of Zometa. So Zometa's every three-month dosing is non-inferior to monthly dosing, and we'll include a link to this in our, in our show notes of the trial that showed this. Do note, though, that this patient included a variety of different patients with different types of cancers, including breast cancer, prostate cancer, and multiple myeloma. And you might also see the use of a drug called denosumab in the castrate-resistant metastatic setting, but it must be given monthly. And so there was a phase three randomized control trial in this space that compared denosumab to Zometa, including over 1,800 patients. And what they found was that denosumab had improved time to this first skeletal-related event by three months. Otherwise, there was no real improvement in progression-free survival or overall survival. So there were also higher rates of hypocalcemia in the denosumab arm at 13% versus 6%. And there was no difference in osteonecrosis of the jaw, which was estimated to occur in about 1% in both groups. So given the modest improvement by three months and the risk of hypocalcemia with more frequent dosing, many people prefer Zometa, um, but you know, both in theory are reasonable options. And the way I think about the difference between these two is that the bisphosphonates really adsorb to the surface of the bone. And so that's kind of the reason why they have this more durable effect. They're going to kind of stick to the bone, soak in the more they're given, and that effect lasts longer. The denosumab, it's an antibody drug targeted towards rank ligand. So it's really only an effect as long as it's in circulation. It doesn't have that same stickiness that the, the bisphosphonates have. So back to our case. Our patient was started on Zometa every three months after he had confirmed progression of his disease with the multiple avid osseous lesions on his next PSMA PET. He had no other signs of systemic disease involvement, no other lesions that we saw in, in sort of visceral sites. And so what kind of treatment options are we thinking about for a patient like this? This is where things get really complicated and the field of prostate cancer has exploded in the last couple of years. So remember, the PSMA PET is critical because we need to know if the patient has PSMA avid lesions because that will inform potential therapy options. And we'll get to that. So that's why a restaging PSMA PET is critical for these patients. The other thing that Dan had mentioned at the beginning is getting things like that BRCA mutation, this mismatch repair genes, that whole panel with the genetic counselor. That's important because PARP inhibitors play a role in some patients with the disease, which we'll get to. But let's just get on to this patient and just patients in general who have castrate-resistant metastatic prostate cancer. So remember that our patient's a little bit unique in that he got triple therapy, but again, this is a newer therapy strategy, so you may see patients who didn't get the triple therapy, and there may be patients who got had low-volume disease and may have just gotten something like abipred or enzalutamide or apalutamide, one of those agents. So the bottom line is this, to simplify it. 
If the patient didn't get docetaxel up front, then docetaxel is an option in this setting. When we went through the historical perspective in our last episode, we referenced that pivotal TAX-327 trial, which we'll link to our show notes. That really compared docetaxel to mitoxantrone, and docetaxel-1, median overall survival of 19 months, better responses, more pain improvement. So docetaxel Q3 week was really the regimen of choice, and that was published in 2004, and that's all we really had for quite a long time. And that still is an important trial today. But let's say the patient did get docetaxel monotherapy up front, then it's sort of choose your own adventure with either enzalutamide or abiraterone with prednisone. So let's start with abipred. There were two pivotal phase three trials showing the efficacy of avipred plus ADT versus prednisone alone plus ADT. You might be wondering, why was prednisone the comparator arm in these patients? And I don't have a good answer for you other than there was just limited treatment options at the time. So it was actually pretty reasonable to do this. and. One trial looked at patients who had prior docetaxel, and then again, that's why that PRED plus ADTR makes sense. And the median overall survival was 15 months for those with abipred compared to 11 months with PRED monotherapy. So that led to the approval of abiraterone with prednisone in the castrate-resistant setting. Remember last week, we talked about the frontline trials with abiraterone and prednisone. When those patients in the control arm who got ADT monotherapy progressed and had castrate-resistant disease, this should have been what they got because this trial was published when those other trials were ongoing, and we saw very low rates of appropriate post-protocol care. The second trial for abipred had the same comparator arm. So again, this is abipred plus ADT versus prednisone alone plus ADT, but it didn't mandate prior docetaxel. So this is really a problem. So you might be wondering why wasn't investigators' choice the control arm, meaning if the patient wanted this overall survival improving, the life-improving medication of docetaxel, why not give them that option? Why are you having prednisone monotherapy as the control arm option? And that's a problem. So there's no surprise. There is improvement overall survival and progression-free survival. Another endpoint was time to needing docetaxel. So of course that you'll delay the time to docetaxel therapy. You're giving abipred versus prednisone alone. And so that was the case in this trial. And the issue here is that when patients progressed, both arms actually got docetaxel because they weren't exposed to it before. And many patients did get docetaxel. So there was still an overall survival benefit. So you might be wondering, well, they got docetaxel anyway, so what's the problem here? The problem is we essentially delayed time to docetaxel. In that control arm where patients got prednisone monotherapy, they could have just gotten docetaxel at that time. And we basically exposed them to prednisone alone, let their disease progress, potentially knock them out of candidacy for docetaxel. We could have potentially change the trajectory of their disease even more with earlier use of docetaxel. And we didn't do that. And so that's why that's a problem. Why not just allow the control arm to get docetaxel therapy? The counter argument is, well, there's a lot of patients who wouldn't be candidates. And then my, my response to that is, well, then just have investigators choice. Let them just give prednisone if the patient's not a candidate for docetaxel, but don't withhold it and delay time. So yes, there is an OS benefit in this case, but we don't know if abipred in the cash rate resistant setting is better than docetaxel. That didn't answer that question. Very quickly, I'll talk about the trials for enzalutamide in this setting. It was the same idea. The first trial was called the AFFIRM trial, and this was in patients who had progressed after docetaxel. Enzalutamide was better than placebo, favoring 
with a median overall survival of 18 months versus 13 months. So about a half year improvement in overall survival. Very similar to the abiraterone prednisone trial for patients who had already received docetaxel. The second trial in that space was called PREVAIL, and this again looked at patients without chemotherapy, and we had the exact same problem. It was comparing enzalutamide to placebo, and at progression, patients got docetaxel. So again, you were just delaying time to docetaxel. Of course, there was improved PFS, no surprise there. 65% had no progression of disease at one year compared to 12% in the placebo arm, not surprised. You delayed time to skeletal-related events. You delayed time to docetaxel because you're giving somebody nothing as opposed to something and delaying time to docetaxel. So bottom line is this, for these therapies in castrate-resistant setting, if you didn't get docetaxel up front... Docetaxel in the second line is very reasonable. If you got docetaxel up front, either enzalutamide or abipred are reasonable options. But we can't say that if you had castrate-resistant disease, that abipred or enza is better than docetaxel. Okay, so it sounds like we have options for chemotherapy with docetaxel, if not previously given, or a novel agent with either enzalutamide or abipred, if not given before. If our patient is going to have triple therapy as his antecedent treatment. What about enzalutamide after abipred? Is there any rationale for sequencing these like that? So the strategy doesn't really work that well with minimal response rates and short-term disease control. And we have some great phase two trials that were done in Canada that give us the answer to this question. So it was a crossover trial where patients got either abiraterone or enzalutamide first, and then they crossed over to the other drug at the time of progression. There were 100 patients that were enrolled who had gotten abiraterone followed by ENZA and 100 patients who had been enrolled first on the ENZA arm and then followed up with abiraterone. The median time to second PSA progression favored ENZA after progression on ABI compared to ABI after progression on ENZA with a median 19 months versus 15 months. So I just want to say that one more time. The median time to second PSA progression favored ENZA after progression on Abby. So Enza after Abby seemed to be the better option. There were 33% of patients who had a response on the Enza in the second line, and only 4% of these patients with response to Abby in the second line. And so what this shows is that abiraterone first, followed by enzalutamide, is a reasonable option given the fact that it had activity and improved time to second PSA progression. However, Abiraterone after enzalutamide has virtually no response rates and should not be considered a good treatment option. Remember, we talked about triple therapy with either abipred or darolutamide as an option. But for those who get abipred triple therapy because of what we've learned from this trial, we still have enzalutamide in our back pocket. And so that's why triple therapy with abipred is kind of our regimen of choice at Rouleau. And we discussed in our historical interlude last week that cabezataxel had shown some overall survival benefit after progression on docetaxel, sticking with our sequencing theme here. Has this been compared to something like enzalutamide after progression on abipred or vice versa? There was an important trial looking at this, and these questions are critical in all tumors in oncology in 2024. We're talking about sequencing of therapies now because we have so many. And this is a great phase three trial called the CARD trial. We'll again link all this to our show notes. You can read more about it. But essentially, patients had been exposed to docetaxel and a novel androgen signaling oral medication, either enzalutamide or abiraterone. And this compared cabazitaxel versus the second line androgen signaling medication. So if you got ENZA first, it would have been ABI. And if you got ABI first, it would have been ENZA. So it just depended on what the patient got up front. 
And cabazitaxel had improved overall survival by three months at a median 14 months versus 11 months compared to that second line oral option. And notably, cabazitaxel, you know, you'll see, and we'll talk about this as we get into the next set of trials, cabazitaxel had a relatively favorable toxicity profile compared to docetaxel. So not saying that it doesn't come with that toxicity. It is chemotherapy. Not all patients can get this, but it's not that it's impossible to give to our patients. And again, it had an overall survival benefit to a second-line oral medication, and that's going to be very important as we talk about the trials coming up. So let's say, guys, that our patient asks about other options other than enzalutamide or cabazitaxel. And so let's say he had heard about this thing called Plavicto on TV, or he had heard about radium therapy. And let's say also that on his genetic testing, his BRCA mutation was positive. So now, you know, he wants to know how can we utilize that BRCA mutation? What is the role of something like Plavicto? What is the role of radium therapy? What are all of his options? How do you answer this question? So we're going to sound a little bit like we're repeating ourselves here, but this theme of appropriateness of a control arm is going to come up again and again as we talk about the data for some of these therapies. So first, let's start with the older therapy, radium therapy. So this uses an isotope of radium, radium-223, and it's actually kind of a clever mechanism. It Basically, it resembles calcium chemically, so it's able to kind of form complexes with some minerals in the bone around areas of increased bone turnover. So in a way, even though it's just this isotope that's being injected into people, it is a targeted form of radiotherapy that's able to deliver these alpha emitter, that's able to act as an alpha emitter and deliver radiation to the areas where it's needed. And so that's kind of the basis for that therapy. And it was improved based on the phase three Alsimka trial, and we'll have that spelled out in our show notes. And that randomized patients to six cycles of radium injections every four weeks versus placebo. Radium-223 has a half-life around 11 days, so it's sort of a rational timing for giving it. In order to qualify for this trial, patients had to be deemed ineligible for docetaxel to have refused docetaxel chemotherapy or previously have gotten docetaxel. So for one reason or another, docetaxel was kind of off the table for these patients. And it was run concurrently with the trials looking at enzalutamide or abiraterone. And so that's how we ended up with placebo as our comparator here. The results showed that we improved median overall survival by about three months. So in in that radium arm, it was 14 months versus 11 months in the placebo arm. And we also delayed time to skeletal events by around six months. So again, although it's looking at placebo and we're kind of just proving that something here is better than nothing, it does look like radium has some treatment effect. Vivek, do you want to tell us about the uh, the data for these other therapies? Yeah, so I'm going to go through this very briefly and we'll have all of these trials linked to our show notes because we've gotten through a lot of data today and all this is just going to make your head spin. So I'm just going to really go through what some of the limitations are of these trials and how we should sequence these therapies. So like Dan said, we had this radium therapy for bone-only metastatic disease. The patients in that trial had only osseous metastatic disease, no visceral metastases. And we didn't have the options of things like enzalutamide or abipred in that setting and radium beat placebo. We're not saying radium is better than something like enzalutamide or abipred, right? We're not saying that. But in that situation where a patient's gotten docetaxel or not a candidate for chemo, that's still a reasonable option today. But now we have the modern set of therapies and this new therapy called lutetium PSMA. So it's called Pluvicto or lutetium PSMA therapy. This is why patients needed to get a PSMA PET scan and a castrate-resistant disease because you need to know if they have uptake of this PSMA tracer. If they don't have uptake of this tracer, then this targeted lutetium PSMA therapy 
therapy wouldn't be a, an option. So this is approved on the phase three vision trial. And we'll have an episode where we actually talk about the vision trial and some of and some of these PARP inhibitor trials later on in our critical appraisal series. But the bottom line is this. Patients were randomized to either this lutetium PSMA therapy or restricted choice of options for therapy in the castrate-resistant setting. Those options were enzalutamide, abiraterone prednisone, prednisone monotherapy. And as you can see here, when I'm talking about these options, you don't hear a chemotherapy option. We knew cabazitaxel was a good option in this case. Patients weren't offered that. We knew that not all of these patients got docetaxel, and that was a good option in this case, and patients couldn't get that in the control arm. So you can see here that we're not allowing patients to get chemotherapy, and that can become an issue, right, when you're comparing new therapy to suboptimal control arm therapy. Most of these patients had had progressed on two lines of oral therapies, meaning they had Enza and Abby, and you're giving it to them again. Or they had Enza, and then you gave them Abby, and we knew that for patients who had that, there's only a 4% response rate. So you're really giving them substandard control arm medications. The writers of this trial will say, well, we didn't have all that data beforehand. We didn't know cabazitaxel, that card trial that we just talked about, had been approved. And while all those are, are, are fair things to say, you could have just said investigator's choice of therapy and allowed appropriate choice of therapy for that control arm. So you can see, basically, we put our thumb on the scale. There was an overall survival benefit. There was a PFS benefit with lutetium PSMA. It is a great therapy. But just know that, is it better than chemotherapy? We don't know the answer to that question, per se. But it's a great therapy. We'll link it to our show notes. It was a pivotal trial, and it got it approved. There was other problems with early dropout. So in the patients that were assigned to the control arm, initially, 55% of patients withdrew from the trial. Half, Over half the patients said, I don't want to be on this trial because I'm assigned to the control arm. That tells you that that control arm set of choices weren't great, and that's not ideal. And so that's another issue with the trial when we think about, does it actually improve overall survival compared to chemo? Again, there's this lutetium PSMA therapy requires a specialized center. There's all these other things that are involved. And in the United States, it may, there may be delays. In other countries, it might actually be easier to get lutetium PSMA than an oral agent like enzalutamide because of how expensive it is. So that's the vision trial. Those are some pearls with that. Know that it's an option for patients in this castrate-resistant setting. After progression on something like an oral therapy, whether they got chemo or not, we don't know if it's better than chemo, but it's a very reasonable option to give to these patients. Hey, Vic, that was great. Dan, that was great. I just want to, I feel like this question comes up on our exams all the time. So I just want to highlight the difference between these because, I mean, quite frankly, as a fellow, I have never seen these drugs being used, and um, but they seem to be favorites of test writers. So I want to point out something that they said, right? So the radium-223 is essentially like a calcium medic, right? And so it is only approved for bone-only disease. These patients have bone-only disease. There is no visceral metastatic disease. In contrast to this, though, lutetium-177 can have visceral involvement, systemic micrometastases. There cannot be liver involvement, however, in this drug. So it is really, really important that before you pick one agent over the other, you're looking at the appropriate indications for its use because it's not like you can use these interchangeably with one another. So that being said, though, the last thing that our patient has thankfully for him on his NGS is, is a BRCA mutation. Vivek, can you talk us through how we utilize things like PARP inhibitors in the prostate cancer space? 
That's a great question. And Rona, what you said is probably the most important thing about what radium is and what lutetium PSMA is in the indication. So everyone should remember that. That is that is critical. Even though we have these targeted therapies, the radium to the bone, lutetium PSMA to the PSMA expressing cells, there are limitations. So for PARP inhibitors, there have been two important phase three trials in this space. One is called profound because it's profound. I don't know. It's expensive. You know, that's a good thing. Two is called Triton 3. Dan's making a face at me because I'm talking about the cost of drugs. But regardless, you know, it is expensive. The second one is the Triton 3 trial. And for Profound, the it was Olaparib versus Investigator's Choice, but limited to no chemotherapy. And in the Triton trial, it was Rucaparib versus Investigator's Choice. Again, no chemotherapy. And in both of those trials, there's a PFS benefit for the PARP inhibitors, whether it was Olaparib or Rucaparib. It included patients with BRCA with BRCA1 mutations, BRCA2 mutations, and ATM mutations. Those are the big three. When we look at all the clinically relevant subgroups, it really benefited the BRCA-mutated patients, not really the ATM patients or the other homologous recombinant deficient genes. It's hard to really interpret that because there's low numbers of patients, but it really did seem to mainly benefit the BRCA-mutated patients. So they may say, okay, great. Well, there was, a, there was a PFS benefit. What about overall survival? How are these studies run? And here's, again, so our control arm chemotherapy wasn't an option. Why? I still don't know to this day, right? Many of these patients who are enrolled in trial are healthy patients. Many of them did get chemotherapy afterwards. So you're wondering, why not give them chemotherapy now? A lot of them had gotten abiraterone at progression got Enzo. You say, okay, that's fine. But then there was also patients who had enzalutamide and then got Abby. And we said that has a 4% response rate. So what are we doing here? That doesn't make a lot of sense when we think about this. So that control arm choice wasn't ideal. Here's the other issue. So you're probably asking me, well, that post-protocol. So we know, I'm not saying PARP inhibitors don't have activity. They clearly do. They clearly have a role. The question is, where do we put this in the sequence of therapies? And in these trials, patients in the control arm at progression got either PARP inhibitor. They either got Olaparib or Rucaparib. Again, delaying time to potentially getting something like docetaxel, which we know improves overall survival. And you say, okay, well, but they at least got the PARP inhibitor, right? So what about overall survival? And I can tell you this, in the Triton trial with Rucaparib, there was no difference in overall survival. So at crossover, they got Rucaparib. They didn't have a chance to get their chemotherapy that we know works. We cannot rule out a survival decrement. You don't want to just give patients the new drug randomly if you don't know for sure it's better than something like docetaxel, right? And that wasn't done. So those are big limitations of those trials. We're not saying it doesn't have activity. Both are approved options, but no, there's limitations. There's issues with the control arms. But for somebody who is not a candidate for chemotherapy, they want to get some therapy. You want to improve their PFS. A PARP inhibitor is extremely reasonable, but I think we need to stop saying that no chemotherapy for any of these patients with prostate cancer. I don't think that's the right way of approaching this. Chemotherapy is still an option, but just knowing, okay, we have a castrate-resistant setting, they had this BRCA mutation, PARP inhibitor is, is on the table. But they can take chemotherapy. It's not that PARP inhibitor is better than that. We don't know the optimal sequencing. I guess you could maybe try and argue that there could be a psychological benefit to being on a pill as opposed to on chemotherapy, but that's on us, right? Like as, as the oncologist, it's our job to counsel patients appropriately on this and allay any inappropriate fears, understandable, but inappropriate fears of something like dostaxel. 
And it's not that PARP inhibitors are easy to tolerate. They have toxicities. A third of patients had grade three or higher anemia, meaning my hemoglobin is less than eight and I need a blood transfusion potentially. Many of these patients have prior cardiac disease. These aren't just not toxic drugs because they're pills. Alaparib is a toxic chemotherapy medication. And so I think that if it was curing patients, that's one thing, but we're not seeing that. We're seeing some improvement in radiographic progression-free survival of lytic lesions, but we're not seeing this overall survival benefit by giving it earlier. And it costs $12,000 a month, as opposed to something like docetaxel, which is a fraction of that cost. Yeah, all totally valid points. And all we can hope for is that we will continue to see improvements in our understanding of the proper sequencing. Hopefully, there are new drugs on the horizon that can bypass some of these issues that we're having. And we started this prostate cancer series talking about how patients with prostate cancer live a long time. And so at the end of the day, quality of life is something that we must, must, must factor into our decision-making for our patients. And that needs to be a part of our discussions along the way, because if they're going to be living a long time with a ton of symptoms, that may not be worth it to the patient. And so it's just important to constantly be having this discussion, re-engaging them in this discussion so that we can do the best things that we can for our patients. So guys, I think that was a great way for us to wrap up another fantastic series, this time focusing on prostate cancer. Any final thoughts that you all have? My last thing is look at our show notes. We'll actually summarize the treatment options for you and you don't have to listen to all of my rambling if you just kept on fast forwarding. Yeah, fast forwarding past feedback is one of my favorite activities when we're listening to episodes. Vivek, I never fast forward through your rants. Don't worry. At least I'm listening. I appreciate it. Of course. I appreciate it. All right, guys. Well, that wraps up another fantastic episode of The Fellow on Call. Until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace.